0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: So we're aware that Menlo has a pretty interesting, people-positive approach to hiring. But could you talk a little bit more about that approach and how it's evolved over the years and what you've learned? And while you're at it, maybe talk about the the extreme interviews that are part of that lore. (laughs) Isn't that a great name? Can you
2: imagine yeah. signing up, saying, "Hey, we're inviting you to an extreme interview." I don't know. If you, I don't know what so you're imagining interview. when you hear that, right? You know, is it like does it involve bungee cords and
3: skateboards?
0: <laughs> <it>, you know? <laughs> Do I need to sign my uh, healthcare? Certificate? Yeah, that's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: We are also joined today by Rich Sheridan, the CEO and Chief Storyteller at Menlo Innovations. Rich, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be with you both.
0: On today's episode, we're going to talk about joy at work and the future of work and the past of work and all things Menlo Innovations. But before we unpack that, we always check in.
1: We always do. Today will not be an exception. So I'm going to go with the random favorite current check-in round at the ready. And Rich, I apologize in advance for the weirdness here. But the check-in question for today is, what is the best bird and why? Why? Aaron, you go first, then me. I'm going to give Rich a second to think about it.
0: The best bird and why. I am long on Ostrich because it's the most dinosaur-like and the most ridiculous.
1: Nice. I am going to go with Bald Eagle Hmm.
0: because...
1: Last weekend on Labor Day, no less, we found them. We found a nest of bald eagles by our lake house while we were out in a very small boat. And they just, they are regal. They're very regal birds. They're white heads. I was a big, big (laughs) fan of the the in-person bald eagle experience. Amazing, Rich, what about you? What's the best bird?
2: Boy, this is tough because I love birds and I've got this toss up in my head, but I'm going to go with hummingbird.
1: Ooh, uh, I like only that.
2: because it is so fascinating. I have a feeder off the back of my deck, and just to watch them, and it's such a thrill when they show up and they buzz around the feeder, and it's just a treat. Uh, I just love watching their agility. I guess is probably the best way to put it. So cool!
1: They are the best. They're like giant bugs, but also tiny birds. <laughs> yeah, I love them. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> There's a great episode of a podcast we listen to that talks about their beaks. And if you actually zoom in, they're quite, they're, they're razor-like. They're almost like little saws. Mm
3: -hmm. It's very
0: cool. Um, Okay. So today's topic is joy at work is the history and the learnings of, of Menlo innovations. And I guess I want to start by asking, how did it all begin? What was, what was sort of the origin of working differently in your company? What was that story for you?
2: Yeah. And Aaron, we have to go back before Menlo to okay. see where that sprang forth. I'm a, I'm a programmer by trade and training. We are literally like almost exactly on the day 50 years ago when I touched a computer for the first time as a freshman in high school at 13 wow. years old. And I was hooked. I <laughs> knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I, I just I fell in love with computers. I fell in love with the idea of writing software. I thought it would be the coolest thing ever. And a career progressed, and it looked beautiful by all world standards. The way the world measures success, you know, I was getting raises and promotions and stock options and bigger <laughs> title and authority and all the stuff that, you know, all the trappings of life. That you know, my wife was delighted with me. My parents were very proud of me. <laughs> Good work. Uh, yeah, exactly. But of course, there was a big but inside of all this, and the but was I was miserable.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was hitting in my mid 30s this trough of disillusionment. I didn't want to be in the industry anymore. I didn't think I could cut it another 30 years because it was literally killing me. It was all kinds of overtime. It was all nighters. It was, you know, running around with your hair cut on fire because of big bugs, big problems, delayed releases, you know, blown budgets. I mean, just everything was going wrong. And yet the world kept telling me, no, you're doing great. You keep going. You know, you're as good as they get. And, like, mm-hmm. and, and maybe I was, but I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I was determined to find it. I started reading books by Peter Drucker, Tom Peters, Peter Senge, not books (laughs) on technology, how to build better teams and organizations. How do we organize the people better? That was my quest. And as I climbed the curve, I finally got up to VP of R&D, something I wasn't really thrilled about because I thought, really, Rich, you want to sign up for the uncapped personal commitment required by an executive inside of a tired, troubled public company. <laughs> but I did. And in about two years and just trying harder, which didn't work, I made a sea change. There was a book I read by a guy named Kent Beck on something called extreme programming, which is a mm-hmm. different way to organize a software team. Saw a video on an industrial design firm in California called IDL nightline had done an episode on them and that gave me this click moment where suddenly the future became clear. I was at a perch that I could do something about it. And over the next two years from my purchase, VP of R&D at a company called Interface Systems here in Ann Arbor, I changed that entire public company and the way they worked. Started in my group, but it ended up spreading out to the whole company. And I got two years to build the prototype for what would eventually become menlo innovations and it was hard it was a lot of effort and it was so worth it and then 2001 comes along the internet bubble burst california parent had purchased interface systems shuttered every remote office they had wow and i lost everything except for one thing they couldn't take away what i had learned in those two years and that became the basis for memory.
1: That's amazing. What a a story. That's a (laughs) great story. But of course, like all great stories, I want to hear about the dark forest part when you had to go through the nightmarish trough between the spark of innovation when you were highly convicted and saw into the future and two years later when you had it all humming. Like, we, we hear from people a lot who are who are locked in on the ideas and feel like they're on the path and just are met with so much resistance. And it sounds like you encountered your share of hurdles and you also had the courage and conviction to keep going. So can you give people some ideas about how to do that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, there was one awesome conversation that almost crystallizes what you're asking about Rodney and then I'll fill in the details about six months into this transformation of that old tired public company Mm -hmm. one of my developers long-time employee he had been with the company for 30 years I was still the new kid on the block I had only been there 16 years at that point (laughs) but I was I was the boss and he was working for me and he came up to me and I believe he, he, there was a time because of his 30 year history with the company that he thought he should have gotten my job as VP of R&D. Sure. I think he got it pretty quickly why I got it and he didn't. But now here he is sitting in my office, having watched this transformation occur over the previous six months. And within six months, we had a rocket and rolling. And he looks at me and says, Rich, I don't get it. Where did you muster the courage? to make this big a change. He said, I know it's working well now, but you had no idea it was gonna work this well when we started this. You put everything on the line. You put your job on the line. You put your title on the line, everything. Why were you willing to take that risk? And he was really curious. This wasn't mm-hmm. just you know some rhetorical question. He, I think he was trying to figure out for himself, could I have done it?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I looked at him, I said, David, it was simple. And he's like, really? I said, David, you don't understand. You're looking at the worldly stuff, the paycheck, the job. I said, and I pointed to my heart. I said, I was dying inside. Mm. This was existential for me. I wasn't running towards risk. I was running towards safety. Mm. The danger was staying the way things currently were. I had to change something or I was going to give. And I said, once I crossed that bridge in my mind, when I realized that this run was a run towards safety, not towards risk, I said, I could run faster and faster and faster. I'm not sure he really got it, but it was crystallizing for me. Now, let me back mm-hmm. up six months when all this began. And, you know, you, you guys know enough about Menlo that the style of work we do today, yeah, it's, Probably not radically different than you would find a lot of other companies, but in 1999, it was (laughs) mind-blowing. I was suggesting to my team that was in all these beautiful offices and cubicles that we're going to move them all out into a big open room. They're going to sit shoulder to shoulder, sharing a keyboard and a mouse together, pairing together, which is the way we work now at Menlo. They were going to work in this big open room in pairs, sharing their code with one another.
1: Uh,
2: uh-huh. And when I suggested this to them and said, guys, I want to know what you think. <laughs> they, wouldn't eye- <laughs> they, <didn't love> <laughs> they wouldn't even
1: make eye They didn't love it.
2: They wouldn't even make eye contact with me. Yeah. All eyes yeah. dropped to the floor. Like if we don't look at him, he'll go uh, away. <laughs> he'll forget yeah. this idea. And finally, one of my guys raised his hand. And I said, Gil, what do you think about this? And he said, Rich, Blood, mayhem, murder. That's what I think about it. Don't (laughs) pull me out of my office. Don't put me out in a big open room. Don't make me share a computer with another human being. And for God's sake, don't make me share my code. It's my code. Mm. And that was was the first response. Mm -hmm. The second one, a little more interesting. After the meeting, two guys on the team who were unwilling to raise their hands in front of their peers came up to me personally and said, we want to try it.
3: Yay.
2: If you're willing to let us, we want to give it a shot. And they did. And about three weeks into this experiment of two of my programmers working shoulder to shoulder all day long in a little room. because They didn't need a big room for two of them. Right. <laughs> One of those guys stopped me in the parking lot and he said, Rich, are you still going to pay me to work here? I said, what do you mean? He says, this new way of working is so much fun. It doesn't actually feel like work anymore. I can't believe mm. how much I'm getting done. I can't believe how much I'm learning. Wow. He says, I'm not sure you should pay me. So here are the two first two reactions. Blood, mayhem, murder, I will work for you for free. I was not getting lukewarm reactions to this change.
0: Interesting. I'm, I feel like we could do a whole hour on, on what you experienced Just there this. alone. But I am... I am eager to to look at the other side of the polarity because that was a transformation, obviously, going from point A to point B and, and beyond. But then you also had the opportunity to do the Menlo Innovations blank sheet of paper, fresh start. What was interesting, challenging, surprising about trying to apply these same ideas when you're going from scratch? You know, I get this question a lot, especially from people who come to visit us. As you know,
2: we get three to 4,000 people a year come from yes. all over the world just to see how we do what we do. And now virtually, because they're doing a virtual tour of the virtual Menlo, which is fascinating all in itself. And they asked me the same question because, quite frankly, I mean, now that Menlo's 20 years old, they assume this is the only place I've ever done it. And exactly. they'll, mm-hmm. they'll wave off our success. Well, of course you could do this, Rich. You right. started mm-hmm. the company. You're the founder. You're the CEO. And then I have to go back to the old story. And I said, well, <laughs> let me tell you about the first time I did this. Yeah, Side so of a tired old public company where I was still the new kid on the block and not the top guy, not at the top perch. And they're like, oh. So <laughs> I, I have a clever way of not letting people off the hook. right?" But then I look at them and I say, do you really think starting a business is easier? I mean, <laughs> we, have a, we have a strange way of working, right? Two people, one computer. We, we are a services business. We bill our humans out by the hour. And people come in, they're fascinated with us. They, they look at how we work and they're like, oh my gosh, I would have never guessed programmers like to work like this.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: then some of them who are contemplating using us suddenly are looking at this arrangement. They're like, wait a minute, do I have to pay for both of these people? Right. <laughs> and then they start asking the really important questions. Why do you believe this produces better results? Why do you believe this is more productivity? Why do you believe this saves me, the customer money when you do this? And that's when the real questions begin. It was relatively easy to begin the company. I know that's probably not something people often say about entrepreneurship. But what was fascinating we started it in 2001 right after the internet bubble burst six Mm -hmm. months before 9 11. the founding of the company uh, sort of the first dining table discussion was in april with a company was officially launched in june of 2001 and, you know, and everything that has followed since then, you know, 9 two wars, 2008, now pandemic, <laughs> you know, I, I thank God you don't have a crystal ball and you can see what's coming, right? But, you know, 2001, there were a lot of things for entrepreneurs that were very expensive, inexpensive.
3: Mm.
2: The, all these companies shutting down, we were able to get cheap furniture, there was cheap <laughs> office space, there were inexpensive people because they were all out of work, and, And the neat thing was, and this is probably a story that a lot of entrepreneurs can talk about, when you're inside of a company that shuts down and all the people, if you've got a good reputation, all the people who know you well, spread out into the community to go to other companies, and then they read the newspaper and say, oh, Rich is starting a company based on what he did at Interface, we should Uh talk to him. Uh And so we got some really great early customers simply because of the reputation I had built locally at Interface Systems. And that was a great way to launch. We didn't have to do a lot of like early work to find those first big customers so we could start to make a name for ourselves, at least in the local community at that point.
1: So speaking of your reputation, it's pretty much your name is a synonym with the word joy. And and <laughs> isn't that cool? It, I mean it's quite it's quite a legacy. <laughs> And and in fact, you have written two books with joy in the title, both Joy Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. Why the focus on joy, and what do you see joy making possible at Menlo or elsewhere?
2: Yeah, and the word joy had been in our mission statement almost from the beginning, and but it wasn't from a how do we talk about the company standpoint. It it was it wasn't central for probably most of the first almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, people come and visit and say, hey, we're a software design and development firm. We've got this unusual way of working, this big open room, two people, one computer, switch the pairs every five days. We've got these high-tech anthropologists that are interesting that study the end. Users were going to serve in their native environment. And everybody was fascinated with it. And we've got this unusual visual, tactile, paper-based planning system that we use, which everybody was like, hey, you're a software company, use paper for planning. And <laughs> you know, all this, all this crazy stuff. And we had a great time in the tours and people would take classes from us and learn our way. And we've always done tours ever since the beginning. And so we had a lot of chances to tell our story. And somebody who had heard me tell the story sent me the Simon Sinek start with why video. And this is long before Simon Sinek was the Simon Sinek we all know today. Mm-hmm. This is like his first TEDx talk, TEDx Puget sound talk. And He's drawn his three circles and most people know what they do and some know how they do it, but almost no one talks about why they do what they do. And the gentleman who sent it to me had heard me speak, said, Rich, you do this. Mm. And... I listened to Simon's talk, and he said the great companies start with why. And I thought, yeah, I get why this guy might have said this about me, because you could probably discern the enthusiasm, you could probably hear joy somewhere in the talk. But I never ever started any conversation about memo with our why,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I was convicted. Uh, I thought Simon's message was perfect, and so. I was determined the next tour group that came in the very next day. I said, you know what? Today's the day I'm going to mm. start with why. And then I thought, wait a minute, what am I going to say? What exactly will be the first words out of my mouth? And I'm, I, you probably are noticing I'm sold seldom- loss <laughs> for words and I am pacing. I'm fretting. I'm like, I'm going to start with why today. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to start with why. And then I went back to our mission statement that had been there from the beginning. In our mission, we have this big, hairy, audacious goal that is to end human suffering in the world as realistic technology.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I thought, boom, that's it. That's what I want to talk about. I want everybody who thinks about Menlo and me to think about suffering. So I'm like, no, okay, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like,
1: it's a little intense. <laughs> and
2: so, but down at the bottom of the mission, it said, our goal since our founding in 2001 is to return Joy. To one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. And it was like, <laughs> like the light came down from heaven. All of a sudden, like,
0: of course,
2: that's it. So this group comes in, and I say the first time I've ever said it, I looked at them, and I said, Welcome to Memo. I said, You have come to a place that has very intentionally created a culture focused on the business value of joy. And let me tell you, their eyes went wide, their heads cocked over, and they're like, Rich, we're here to learn about your software design and development practice. (laughs) Why on earth are you talking about joy? Yeah. And I said, well, I said, you know, because then their next question was, and and what possible business value could there be to joy, right? Why would they make a difference? I said, well, let's go back and see the team. We're going to take a tour. Mm -hmm. Pretend that half of my team for some odd reason has joy and the other half doesn't and pretend you're bringing a project which half would you want working on your project Mm -hmm. and they said well of course we'd want the joyful half i said why what difference would it make why would you care well they'd be more productive they'd care more about the outcomes they produce higher (laughs) quality they'd be easier to work with i'm like okay you're with me there is in fact tangible business value to joy you just said it i said now i'm going to take you back and show you how we do what we do and anywhere." anywhere in this tour, stop me and say, Rich, draw a line back to Joy, and I will be able to draw a short, straight line from what I just described back to Joy. And quite frankly, that, that day changed everything and led to two books, led to me being known as the Joy Guy, increased our <laughs> tour counts. I mean, and, and quite frankly, it, it is the center part of the stories that we tell as a team to each other and to the world
0: you know i'd actually like you to to draw a line right now so menlo is is pretty famous for the the practice of pairing and i'm pretty curious about where that came from but also the why behind it and what you've noticed as you've nurtured that practice what is what is joyful about pairing and where did that come from
2: so pairing was the thing that created that blood mayhem murder response from Gilway way back mm-hmm. in interface systems yep. and i'll admit i was dubious when i first contemplated it because you know natural boss equation right like why would i be willing to cut productivity in half for some ethereal benefit right and then i watched my team begin to work and problems intractable problems that i would had for years on the teams i led suddenly melted away I'll give you a couple examples the tower of knowledge problem mhm almost every software team in the planet has this problem you have you know they call it the 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 beer truck test or the bus test you know what happens if one of your programmers gets run over by a bus how will you recover and be like oh my gosh you know bill got ran over by a bus we'd be screwed right okay. you know and there's this classic uh comic that, where they show lowering a casket into the ground and you know one of the guys is leaning over to the to the deceased one's wife and says, did he say anything about source code? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, this is a big problem. And the trouble is those hero-based organizations can't scale. The only way to scale a hero-based organization is to scale the hero. The only way to scale the hero is over time. And after 50 or 60 hours, tired programmers start making bad software. Mm. And that was my life. It was bad software left and right and teams that couldn't scale, teams that were too busy and they were working scads of overtime and teams that weren't busy enough, but they couldn't come and help the team that was too busy because they didn't know what they knew. Mm -hmm. And so with pairing and in our world, the switching of the pairs frequently, at least every five days, knowledge transfer, teaching, learning, mentoring, sharing things I learned yesterday or last week or in college with my peers, things I learned from deep years of experience. And so we end up with this team that's just learning all the time. And ultimately, the short straight line back to joy is this. There is ultimately only one thing that brings joy to an engineering team, one and one thing alone, and that is to see the work of their heart, their hands, and their minds get out into the world and delight the people it's intended to serve so much that those people come back later and say, really? you got to work on that i love that product mm. i love that service i love what you guys have created thank you you made my life better that is the definition of joy for a technical team through and through For the history of mankind, you show me any team that denies that, and I will tell you, they've never found that kind of joy, and they traded away for something else, for a title, for a paycheck, for a stock option, for a corner office by the window, for a better parking place. But that's what they really want is that, and that's what I get. We've had 20 years of producing delight for our customers with teams that don't have to work overtime. Because if we need to scale an effort, we can scale the size of the team, not the hours that individuals are working on the team. We don't have any singular dependence on a person. So if they want to take vacation, they can without carrying a laptop home with them, uh, taking it on vacation and working on the beach while the kids are off playing in the water. All of this stuff is critical to the joy we are producing here regularly and systematically.
1: And when you see an organization taking joy seriously, as yours does, but if you extrapolate that out, what else tends to be true about that organization's culture?
2: Yeah, I have this simple model for joyful organizations that's easy to even picture in your head without the pictures that I draw around this. So picture an airplane with four forces that work on it, the lift, countervailing weight, the plane down the thrust that pulls it forward provided by the propeller or the jet engine and the drag that holds it back just by the presentation of the aircraft and the wind that it's flying through if you compare those forces to the forces that work on a human organization you can begin to get a picture of what would a joyful organization look like so there's that lift of human energy and you know it. you walk into Mm -hmm. a company you can feel Mm -hmm. It's palpable. You can feel the human energy of the people, of the teamwork, of the space, everything. The weight that holds us down, the weight that pulls out the human energy is the weight of bureaucracy and meeting load. I (laughs) often tell companies, I said, if you want a simple formula for sucking the human energy out of your organization, here's a three-step process. Number one, have lots of meetings. Number two, do not by any means, make any decisions in those meetings. (laughs) And number three, if perchance by mistake, you just happen to make a decision, that's okay. Just don't act on it. And you will pull (laughs) all the human energy out of your organization.
1: (laughs) It'll be the most efficient thing they've done.
2: Right, and think about the you know the large corporations where there's certain layers you know you people are my one up boss my two up boss my three up boss, or whatever nomenclature they're used for the layers and layers of management about them there's usually a layer that that layer and above are literally human sacrifices to meetings right
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so and when I say that at audiences, they're all like leaning over and <laughs> Like who's he been talking to in our company, you know, <laughs> or that's my life, you know, and all the people are jam packed now with zoom meetings uh, one after another, after another. For so sure. those two forces are critical. Purpose is the thrust an externally focused purpose. And we talk about it here at Menlo. Our purpose is to delight the people we intend to serve. Every organization that's high flying has some Solidly understandable purpose that is externally focused about serving others. And the drag that holds us back is the drag of fear. Now, the joyful organizations, they don't eliminate fear. They don't eliminate bureaucracy. What they do is they lighten those things Mm -hmm. and they focus their attention on increasing the human energy and increasing the understanding of our organization's purpose. And now we've got these forces in the right balance and that little corporate aircraft can get off the ground reliably every single day.
0: So I'm I'm very curious because I really obviously emotionally and and you know with every fiber of my being believe in what you're saying and this idea of designing for joy of trying to create joy that it can have a little bit of like a forced family fun aspect to it, right? How do you manage the difference between Nurturing joy authentically versus sort of telling everybody, I'm the joy guy and you're here to have joy right. <laughs> and there will be joy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think this goes back to at least for me in the importance of word definitions. And you know, I'm the guy in the podcast today, so I'll give you my definitions of two important words and the difference between them. Sure. The difference between joy and happiness. So a lot of people say, I remember even I was arguing with my publisher at the time, my editor at Penguin, about what the subtitle for my first book would be. You know, the title of the book is Joy Inc. And the subtitle she wanted was take a peek inside the world's happiest company. Mm. And I said, oh, no, Natalie. Mm -hmm not on your life. I will not allow it to be in the cover. She's like, why? I said, because joy and happiness are two very different things. And she was like, well, what do you mean? And I wrote her an email and that, the content of the email got put in the book because she said, this is so good, it's got to be in the book. But the, the difference is, and we have happy times here too. I mean, there's no question that, you know, happiness is an important component. You can't be happy Every minute of every day, doing anything of value, doing any hard work—I mean, that would require medication. Um, <laughs> but joy is a much longer arc. You know, anyone who has raised children, and as I have with uh, two of my daughters now, handed them away in marriage—you know—and that is, you know, that is a long arc of joy. Parenting is anything but happy every minute of every day. Are there happy moments? Of course there are. That's why we do it. But parenting is hard work. So is running a company. I think if you saw Menlo and you came in here and you toured around, you'd be surprised what you don't see here. You don't see foosball tables. You don't see ping pong tables. You don't see beanbag chairs. You don't see uh, kombucha machines or however (laughs) you pronounce that. We don't have any of that stuff. and, And people come in and they work. They work hard all day long. But it's that spirit and energy of camaraderie of knowing they're working on things that there's high clarity there is there is certainty about the work and the process we use the team believes in what we do they see the results of those beliefs paying out in the projects that we deliver to the world and people come back and tell us they love the software we created and that's where the joy comes from for us so this isn't about click your heels and sing a happy song whistle while you work kind of environment again we're pretty playful here, too. I mean, we run our daily stand-up meeting called by a dartboard alarm clock. Why well, a dartboard needs an alarm clock? We have no idea. But, uh, <laughs> and then and, and control the talking stick is a two-horned plastic Viking helmet, right? Nice. So it, somebody described us once as whimsically irreverent about standard corporate practices. And, and I like that because it says, don't ever take yourself too seriously. Take the work seriously.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And something that's emerging in this conversation that that I think is important is just, it seems like in the culture that you have cultivated, you are very wisely not reductive about work. And, And one of the things that I think in large companies and, you know, and even just in cultures where there's not a lightheartedness or a spirit of creativity is like that everything needs to be a means to an end. And I think in the best companies and and I would include our own in this in particularly in this way, I think people working trust that if they have an idea, if they want to try something on, if they have an experiment to run, even if it's not on specifically on the to-do list, that that's okay and that there is benefit there and that that's how like we we get to real innovation and it sounds like from pairing to different ways of doing stand-ups to experimenting with ways of working y'all just sort of have that spirit of we can try stuff like we don't have to don't have to know that it's going to work we can just try
2: yeah there are three phrases here at menlo that are consistent throughout our history and we have posters on the wall that reinforce them but but it's the use of the phrases that go right to the heart of what you're saying, Rodney. Number one is make mistakes faster.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Not And it's not fail faster. I actually don't like fail faster. <laughs> and that's just me, maybe. Failure to me it sounds permanent. It's like when you fail a class in school, it went on your permanent record, right? You got an F and it's on your report card and you can't get rid of it. Make mistakes faster is a simple acknowledgement of our humanity. Mm-hmm. If, if we're honest with ourselves, we can say, you know what, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. So now we have a choice. We can either make really big, slow, expensive mistakes,
3: mm-hmm. or we
2: can make small, fast mistakes that we correct before they kill us. And so make mistakes faster, constant phrase here. Remember. Number two, let's run the experiment.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: this is an attitude of take action versus take a meeting. Don't form a darn committee to write a policy. Just take action. And so what happens is, and, you know, we've all had this experience one time or another, right? We go to a conference, read a book, get some new idea, come to work the next day and say, guys, I have a great new idea. And the first person you tell it to who didn't read what you read, didn't hear what you heard, says, oh, that won't work here. Yeah. That's against policy. We tried that 10 years ago. It didn't work then. It won't work now. And the idea dies right then and there. And our team has a pre-programmed response. Yeah, I get it but let's try it before we defeat it. Let's run the experiment.
1: Mm, I love try it before we defeat it. (laughs) That's gold.
2: And the third phrase, which is critically important here because we're an innovation company It's built right into our name is, it's okay to say, I don't know.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm thinking now about how you find people to join a system like this. Because for (laughs) most people... They have had different formative experiences. They may have different ideas about what is important and what might lead to good outcomes. So we're aware that Menlo has a pretty interesting, people-positive approach to hiring. But could you talk a little bit more about that approach and how it's evolved over the years and what you've learned? And while you're at it, maybe talk about the the extreme interviews that are part yeah. of that lore. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? Can you imagine signing up saying, hey, we're inviting you to an
2: extreme interview? I don't know if you, I don't know what you're imagining when you hear that, right? You know, like, does it involve bungee cords? (laughs) skateboards? Do I need to sign my health care certificate? That's right. Should I bring a helmet? Um, And, you know, I will say broadly uh, for all of your listeners that if your plan is to create an intentional culture, and I would advocate for an intentionally joyful culture, but that's me. You don't take a hard look and align every one of your HR practices, your traditional HR practices of recruiting, of interviewing, of selecting, of onboarding, of promoting, of giving feedback, and even of firing. If you don't align those with your intentionally you know, purposeful, joyful culture, you will not achieve it. You have to look at your HR practices. So let's take a look at Menlo. So we're this big room of people working shoulder to shoulder in pairs, switching the pairs at least every five days. That's our work environment. Happens all day, every day. Well, imagine a standard interview to join Menlo, the kind I used to run in my old days, which I describe as two people sitting across the table lying to each other for a couple of hours, style of Mm (laughs) interview, right? We've all been there, you know, Know so now at Menlo, we've got this crazy different environment that no one, I mean, virtually no one has ever worked in an environment like ours when they, when they decide to interview with us, you know, they've been, if they're software engineers, they've often led a life of living in a sensory deprivation chamber called a cubicle. They were allowed to put headphones on, block out all of their noise, come in at weird hours, not overlap with other humans. Of course, their employers lament that then they lack interpersonal skills, which is shocking. But yeah, let's magnify their introversion by, you know, letting them cut themselves off from humanity. So in our environment, we thought we better simulate the work environment during the interview. So we invite people in in math 30, 40, 50 people at a time, almost the size of Memo sometimes. And we pair them during the interview with another candidate. Mm. And we give them the weirdest instructions you will ever hear in an interview process. Aaron and Rodney, you were paired together. We'd say, Aaron, your job is to help Rodney get a second interview, and she's interviewed for the same position you are. She's your competitor, right? And, oh, by the way, Rodney, your job is to try and get Aaron a second interview. That'll be a little harder for you, but that's okay. (laughs) We can see how good you are. And we're going to have you work together. We're going to give you a task. We're going to give you a piece of paper and a pencil and a task to work on. And the Menlonian sitting across from you, you can ask them any questions you want, but they're just there to observe how you work together. Okay. And oh, by the way, let's tell you what failure looks like. Aaron, don't grab the pencil out of Rodney's hand, ask for it politely. What we're looking for is good kindergarten skills. Do you play well with others? Do you share? Do you not hit bite scratch? Run through the room with scissors over your head. If you know, if one of you is seeing the other struggling, do you help them out? If one seems nervous, do you help them, you know, settle down a little bit with humor or maybe ask some personal questions about their life, get to know them a little bit? We also want to see you work not a question of get the right answer on this little task we gave you. We really don't even look at the results. But we Mm. are going to see – we want to see evidence that you can actually get down to work and be productive in this 20 minutes. 20 minutes in, we switch the pairs. Now it's not Aaron and Rodney paired together. It's Aaron and Bill and Rodney and Sue. And that 20 minutes, we switch it again, and we send you all home. It takes about two hours to interview 50 people. Our interview process is fast. Now, Mm. the only question – for if there were fifty of you, there would have been twenty-five of us watching. Mm-hmm. The only question of the twenty-five isn't should we hire Aaron or Rodney? The only question is do we invite Aaron or Rodney back in for a second interview? And in the second interview, you come in on your own by yourself. We pay you for an entire day of work at Memlo. You work on a real client project paired in the morning with one Memlonian, paired in the afternoon with another one, and now we look for the votes. And the three votes are yours. And the two people you paired with, we want to see if you liked working for us for a day.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's kind of tiring. different,
1: <laughs> Yeah.
2: And if that works, we invite you in for a paid three-week trial where you're going to now pair with three different people over, over the course of the next three weeks. Now, not everybody can do a paid three-week trial, but it's amazing how often they can. And when they can't, we just you know, we make some change to the process. But the main thing is we are trying to give people a real life experience, not in two people across the table lying to each other experience. We want them to see what does it actually feel like to
1: work here? I love that. And do you have a sense of before you started hiring this way and afterward, the difference in fit or match or turnover? Like, do you, do you have a sense of how this way of working has impacted your ability to have great humans at Menlo?
2: Yeah, and we started doing this back at Interface Systems. And I will tell you, my first grand relief when interviewing this way was that I used to hate interviewing. I hated every part of the process. When I was the hiring manager, I'd get this stack of resumes and I'd try and like evaluate who should we bring in based on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper? Mm -hmm. And, and then when you bring them in, it's this inordinately long process because you got to hand them off to other people. And then when they finally arrive, it's this horrible onboarding process. It's almost like a corporate hazing ritual. And, and I would typically say my, my job as a hiring manager was to try and get you productive before I demoralized you. Mm
3: -hmm. And it was a
2: race. I had about three weeks to three months to win. And I usually lost. And so I'm not exactly sure, and I'll I'll readily admit this. A lot of people used to say about our extreme interviewing event, oh, you're hiring for culture fit. Mm
3: -hmm. And I
2: used to say yes. Mm -hmm. I said, absolutely, that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I don't believe Mm -hmm. that anymore. I actually don't believe that. I believe what's actually happening in our interview is, for the first time in most people's lives, A new employer is setting clear expectations for behaviors, and you find out, you know what? If they're clear and they're rational, human beings are amazingly adaptable. And so I think people adapt to our work environment. And because everybody's behaving roughly the same way in terms of, oh, my gosh, you guys really work in pairs all day long? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You, you know, and programmers, you know, they have their own particular way of working. Like, you know, we write automated unit tests before we write the code, we check the code in, you know, everybody's working the same way. So there's these clear expectations and people get it so quickly here. And it's not just because they're being badgered by team members say, this is the way we do things, sir. And you have to do it this way too. They understand that it makes sense. hmm uh-huh. And they see the results of that sense making and five days into it, they're seeing a show and tell with the customer and the customer's like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And they're like, wow, this stuff really works. (laughs) So within just days, you know, I used to have such trouble bringing new people into an old organization, right? When, when could I ever let them go to be productive here? No one's ever alone. Mm -hmm. So they start working the minute they land. They start working the second they arrive, you know, and, you know, they're coming in, they're going to be pairing with the Mendelonian. And our team knows that the best way to teach somebody is through their ears and their fingertips. So they put the keyboard under the new person's hand. This isn't a come watch me work and you'll get it someday. They're like, no, no, put your hands on the keyboard and mouth. I will teach you through your ears and your fingertips.
0: I am curious, if you're not hiring for fit, what do you think is actually being tuned into or sensed by the Menlonians when they're selecting who they'd like a second interview with?
2: Yeah, I think by and large, I think there, there's a few things they look for. One is, do they see evidence that this person, if they receive any amount of critical feedback, will they listen and respond? Or are they rigid? Are they inflexible? Do they, my way or the highway? That doesn't work really well here at Menlo mm-hmm. not for very long. You know, and if, are they a bully? Are they, are, they, you know, are they, do they demand that their idea wins? Or are they open to the possibility that somebody might have a better idea than they do? Do they have to own work product? In other words, this is mine. You, you helped me, I know, but it's mine. Those are the kind of things they're, they're sensing. And because in some ways, what they're really asking is a very important question. And this is different than most people would interpret. They're really looking at this person saying, how would I feel if I paired with this person for 40 hours? Now, some people would look at that and say, oh, that's about getting along. That's about, you know, don't, you know, don't ruffle feathers or something. No, our team wants to learn from this new person. They want to grow. And so they're looking at saying, could this person support me when I'm struggling? Will this person help me out when I'm stuck? Will this person lower, not lord their knowledge over me, but share it with me? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff they look for. So you end up with this really cognitively diverse team because what happens is our team looks and says, whoa, i never run into somebody who thinks quite like this yeah. person. Does. What's this missing? Would be fascinating. Yeah. I love
1: that. It wouldn't be a podcast episode in 2021 if we didn't talk about the pandemic. So, <laughs> pandemic? Really? Pandemic <laughs> going on? So, so y'all are known for having a big, wide open office space and, you know, folks huddling together and welcoming babies and dogs. And, you know, you have a culture and that babies. is, is babies, babies, babies <laughs> and dogs. And, uh, you know, your culture is really known for this intensely close collaboration. We are curious to hear how you were able to preserve that sense of togetherness, even while physically togetherness wasn't possible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. March 16th, 2020. What (laughs) a week. Yeah. You know, I think we probably created the most dangerous work environment conceivable for a highly contagious disease like COVID, (laughs) right? I mean, you think, you know, (laughs) two people sharing... Two physical objects all day long talking in close <laughs> proximity to one another. And if that's not good enough, let's switch the pairs every five days just in case just we just make sure we spread it around. Yeah, right. exactly. and Let's make sure we have a daily stand-up where everybody touches the, the stand-up token and pass it around a circle and all that <laughs> sort of thing, right? And so, you know, that week of March 16th, 2020, was like, fire. get out of the building. Get out as quick as you can. Take as much equipment as you need. Uh, if you forgot something, we'll bring it to you. And I'll be the first to admit, and I will say it over and over again, I panicked. Mm-hmm. I thought, will Menlo survive this? And I am delighted to tell you the team led the way out, not me. They innovated like crazy in those just those first few days. And, you know, the pairing stuff, not so hard. Easy to imagine, right? Mm-hmm create a Zoom link, share it between us sure. so we can see each other all day, put the code up on a separate screen, have a screen sharing application. And we've actually been doing that with our customers continuously for seven years. So it wasn't that unusual for us to be have a peer partner that was far away. Not unusual at all. We've been doing that. We've just never done it at the scale of old company. And so not so hard there. The part the team immediately missed, was we, what we lovingly refer to as high-speed voice technology. <laughs> the ability to call out across the room, hey, Aaron, hey, Rodney. And you look up and say, hey, Rich, what do you need? You don't move, right? No meeting, no you know checking of calendars, <laughs> sending out invites and all that kind of stuff, right? And so the team immediately realized, oh my gosh, we can't, we, we don't know where everybody is, don't know how to find them. Should we text them? Should we email them? Uh, email is not a big thing here in terms of checking in all day long. And so the team immediately came up with this experiment and just percolated up like all the experiments do. They created quickly created a shared Google Drive sheet that would be accessible to everyone. And because, you know, Aaron, if you and I were paired together for the day, you and I would have shared a link with one another so we could connect, like the Zoom link. And so the team said, let's just publish those to the rest of the team. Mm. And so they just put together the simple spreadsheet, names on the left, pair partners, you know, Aaron and Rich working together. And here's our Zoom link if you want to talk to us. And so within days, we had this Google Drive shared Google Sheet. With all the links. And so anybody wants to come talk to Aaron Rich, just click on the link and boom, instead of just you and I in the Zoom call, now there's four of us in the Zoom call. Not quite as easy as, hey, you know, Rodney, hey, Aaron, but pretty darn quick. And those are the kind of adaptations we started making. Um, Give you another simple one. We, you know, we have this daily standup meeting at 10. We get in a circle, pass around the plastic Viking helmet. 50, 60 people in the standup takes 13 minutes. In the, uh-huh. in the office. Well, the team said, Well, we still want to do stand up. What can we do? And of course, everybody's like, Well, let's just do a big Zoom meeting, right? Get everybody <laughs> on the screen at the same time. And it was a complete disaster. Our little 13 minute stand up was now taking 35 minutes because nobody knew who was first, who was next, who was paired with whom. Is everybody gone yet? And we're like, Oh my gosh, this is torture, right? It was clunky. It was awkward. It was uncomfortable. And it was completely unproductive because there were so many gaps as we're like, Who's next here? And blah, blah, blah. So the team, again, to the rescue, run the experiment. They said, hey, let's replace the plastic Viking helmet with the chat window in Zoom. And what will happen is, as people arrive, if Aaron shows up with Rich, they just put in there in the chat room, Aaron and Rich next. Rodney would show up with Bill, and Rodney would write Rodney with Bill next. And then it lined us all up. We knew who was first. We knew who was next. We knew who was last. And suddenly, daily stand-up in the Zoom meeting got back down to 13 minutes joy cuz we think mind, uh, sp- uh, meetings are mind numbing spirit sucking energy draining devices of management so the ones we have we want to keep short and <laughs> so those kind of innovations started springing up now is it perfect no not by any means did we make it work you bet we did are there still little things we got to work on even a year and a half in absolutely the team misses the in person stuff but not so much that they all rushed back when we started opening the office because (laughs) guess what? There were all these new behaviors they had developed. They really liked not having a 40-minute commute to the office or even 20 minutes. I knew I was in trouble when we started talking about bringing people back in. And George, one of our team members, one of our programmers said, well, you know, Rich, um, that 20-minute commute I have, that's, that's a big part of my day. And I said, wait a minute, George, you live five blocks from the office. He goes, yeah, I know. I walk to work. Ah. <laughs> like, like, you're choosing to walk to work you know and so you know and and it dawned on me very quickly we got to give people a lot a lot of leeway and space for anything that's going to look anything close to what menlo used to look like and quite frankly we have hired people since the pandemic who have never been to the office they are purely been 100% remote which is kind of mind-blowing to me we we virtualized that extreme interview we talked about which mm. we were very nervous about but it worked two of those since the pandemic and um and it's all working and I can't unsee that that it's working and so you know it's still my brain that's getting rewired through all of this because if I can snap my fingers and like come on back and you know, we'll all be the same but we see all these benefits too, right? We see the team members who, you know, Chris lives far away and, you know, and on a snow day up here in Michigan, huh. um, you know, he would take a day off rather than risk the drive. Well, now sure. he can just work from home and why not? Right. And so, and we have some team members that absolutely. I, I just want to stay at home. And these remote team members, some of them are far away. I don't think they're moving the Arbor, Right. And we're okay with that.
0: I mean, I think that's a really open and, and ideally inspirational way to approach what's next, because there's so many possibilities for how work can be. And we all have found things that work, but there's a lot yet to be discovered. So to me, that feels like a pretty nice place to draw things to a close today. Rich, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and Menlo and Joy? Yeah. You know, I would encourage your listeners, if they want to, we
2: do these free 90 minute tours once or twice a week. Just go to our website, menloinnovations.com and right up on the homepage, tours, public tours, sign up for a 90 minute tour. It's a click of a link away. Since we started doing these in June of 2020, we've had over 2,000 people come from 64 countries and 39 states. Wow. And it's been delightful. And so that's a good way to get to know us. So obviously, the books that you referenced are a great way to learn more about sort of the spirit, the philosophy, the practices of Menlo. And if they want, link in with them. I'm on LinkedIn. And, you know, if they reference this episode, I, you know, it wouldn't, when people say, here's why I know you, I usually accept <laughs> the LinkedIn request. And, and then they can write an email to me, rsheridan at com.
1: Awesome. Well, I can't wait to join a Menlo Innovations tour. I will absolutely be doing that soon. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: You bet. This is a blast. A very quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making all three of us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work, hopefully find some joy in the process. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.